Mindfulness Mode 321. It's not only true that the mind follows the body, the body can follow the mind. You're listening to Mindfulness Mode, and I'm your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks so much for coming back, and uh, if you're new to the to the show, welcome. I appreciate all the times you're sharing with friends and sharing on social media. That helps me to keep the show on the air. Hey, have you ever wondered about mindfulness and technology and how mindfulness can help you with technology? Well, today's a perfect day for you because that is what the interview is about today. I think you're going to truly benefit from this interview with a man who is not only an expert at mindfulness and technology, but he's written the book about it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode with Robert Plotkin. Hey, Robert, are you in mindfulness mode? I'm doing my best. <laughs> That's great. Robert. Ask, ask me in the next moment if I'm still. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly changes moment by moment, doesn't it? <laughs> Robert Plotkin is an engineer, a mindfulness practitioner, and the founder of Technology for Mindfulness. And if you haven't heard the podcast called Technology for Mindfulness, you need to check that out right away. Robert's relationship to Zen Buddhism stems primarily from his study of Japanese martial arts for more than three decades. He's a graduate of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at the Center for Mindfulness, and he practices mindfulness meditation. His fascination with the relationship and interactions between computer technology and the mind is reflected in his book on the automation of creativity in the field of inventing. And this book is The Genie in the Machine, How Computer Automated Inventing is Revolutionizing Law and Business. So Robert, what does mindfulness mean to you? <laughs> well, I mean, of course it has the traditional meaning of intentionally paying attention to the present moment without judgment, there's no doubt. But there's a couple of elements of it, I think, that have always been particularly important to me uh, in relation to technology. Some of it comes from my practice of the martial arts. So one of them, which is focused on, I think, not quite as much these days, is the ability of mindfulness to help us develop the capacity to respond rather than what we call react. You know, we all, we all have that uh, instinctive reaction to things, particularly if they're upsetting or annoying, you know, the person cutting us off on the road. <laughs> and I'll, yeah. I'll react just as much as anyone. And what's a reaction? It's usually something that it's mindless. It's based on our wiring or our, how our, what our upbringing was. And it just sort of happens automatically without us necessarily being even aware of what it is. And if we're aware of it, we might internally have some feeling of annoyance or fear or anger and externally you know we might make a motion to that driver on the road <laughs> you know not not yeah. be our best be our best selves and i've i've always been drawn to mindfulness and keep coming back to it because i found that although you know i'm far from perfect at it i have seen some ability to develop more of a capacity to pause and respond in a wise way, the way I would prefer to be, be more of the person I'd like to be, even in those stressful 
moment. So, so responding what science called wisely or skillfully is a big, big part of mindfulness for me. Well, and how we respond to technology, of course, can really determine how we live our lives and how much anxiety we're filled with or not. And you've been involved with technology for some time. In the intro, I said 30 years. Wow, 30 years. Tell us about those early days when you were sitting around with a stack of key punch cards and <laughs> you, were, you were creating something very exciting on that, on that computer, maybe using yeah. Fortran language. <laughs> I will date myself. I'm a little bit younger than those days, although I remember programmers who were using punch cards. I'm, I'm in my late 40s. I started using computers. I was about 10 or 11 years old. So that was in the very early days of the PC, you know, around 1980 or so. So we're talking about basic, we're talking about TRS-80 computers. So for those people out there who weren't around or don't remember it, there's no internet. Uh, the computers are radically different. And it might be surprising that I, one of the things that really attracted me to computers was that when I used them, I found they helped me stay really focused. Uh, well, I, I got drawn to programming and also to writing on computers in the, those early word processors, which essentially were like a blank screen uh, with a cursor sitting on it. And I found that I could write and program and really get into that focused zone, what now people call flow, a flow state using a computer. And over the last 30 plus years, you know, I've watched and experienced in great frustration as the technology has developed very much away from that. You know, in the 90s, I started to find myself being less and less focused, more and more distracted while I tried to write. I became a patent lawyer in which I have to do a lot of deep thinking, sitting for long periods of time at a computer. And I found once my computer got connected to the internet, <laughs> I was starting to get emails. There was a web browser. You know, people were contacting me all the time. The technology started to change and started to nag at me, pull at my attention. And I found the computer was increasingly becoming something that distracted me rather than kept me focused, you know. Uh, and of course, then fast forward to the, the iPhone and the smartphone, constant connectivity, on a mobile device everywhere, all the time, high speed with social media, multitasking, you know, and I found even in the course of writing my book, which I wrote from around the year 2000 to 2008, I started shifting to writing longhand on pencil and paper. <laughs> when and do I, you still do that today? You know, for initial brainstorming, if I have a new idea and I just want to get it out in a focused, uninterrupted way, I will go to a quiet place with a pad of paper and a pen, and I will let it come out. Sometimes I'll dictate, you know, sometimes I'll dictate and make an audio recording. And uh, because I found that increasingly the technology was working against me, I found I had to fight against it. And, you know, so since I think I've straddled these two, two time periods, uh, two different extremes of uh, devices as as tools to help focus, and now let's just call them engines of distraction. Really, yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> I feel like I I know that the technology doesn't have to be that way because it wasn't always that way. 
No. You know? <laughs> so this has been a big motivator for me in launching and running technology for mindfulness. I see it in part as a forum for helping uh, educate people about how they can use technology uh, to help them be more focused and mindful and present, help uh, encourage people to develop technology. And really, you know, one way to think about it is I, I really want to see technology developed in a way that gets the best of both worlds. I don't think we should be going back to punch cards or TRS-80s. You know? <laughs> to me, the challenge and the real, the real promise and interesting challenge is how can we get the best of, of computers and smartphones as tools to help us focus and be our best selves uh, without being distracted while taking advantage of high-speed internet connectivity, the ability to communicate with people, uh, the people on your podcast can't see. We're looking at each other right now in real right. time. You know, that's an amazing thing. I wouldn't want to give all of that up. But how do we basically maximize the positive and minimize the negative? That's really what I see as the next chapter in our technological evolution. And what are some of the answers to these questions? Are young people, you know, uh, they're getting out there, they're getting their driver's license, and they're so connected to this online world. And, and it's just such an urge to pick up the phone if there's a text message, if there's some kind of, you know, anything going on on the phone. How do we change that? Yeah, so there's a few components. And I would say individual mindfulness practice is definitely a significant component of it. I'm, I'm, let me just preview by saying I don't think it, it's the only answer, uh, but I think it's really important. I think traditional mindfulness practice can do a lot to help an individual person develop that capacity to stop and pause before they answer the phone or, or go back on Facebook or something else. And one of the things I've developed, we, we've launched some preliminary versions of it, but are working on a more complete version of a course called Tap Into Mindfulness, which is really a set of mindfulness exercises or practices that you use with your smartphone in hand. There, you think of it as a kind of applied mindfulness. I can give you an example. We can do it while seeing each other, but I can describe it to people in a way they can, they can go along with just by listening. That would be uh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. So I've got my smartphone, and what I'd suggest is if you can pick it up and have it be asleep so the screen is blank, okay? okay? Now you might pick up your phone and, and as you move it, it might wake up. I, you know, that's something that, that the um, vendors have put into the phone, I think, <laughs> yes. to try to draw us in, right? Just move the phone and the screen comes up to try okay. to attract you to start using it. Put okay. your phone to sleep. Yeah, okay, it's, it's asleep. Okay, now hold it in your hand the way you normally would. And now start moving your thumb towards the home button and hover your thumb right over that button, but don't tap it. And now, I'm just gonna do a very abbreviated version of, of the instructions I give, but while your thumb is hovered over that button and you're looking at the phone and looking at your thumb, now do what you would do in a, in a traditional mindfulness meditation. Pay attention to what thoughts are arising while you're sitting here observing but not acting. Now, what feelings do you have? Emotions, uh, do you feel any physical sensations, particularly any change? A common one for me, and I feel it right now, is my heart beating a little faster. <laughs> right, yes. I feel some tension in my chest. 
that I didn't have before I picked up the phone and hovered my thumb over it. Right. So the purpose of this exercise is a couple of things. One is to practice intentionally inserting a pause into that action of moving your thumb towards the button, which I suspect, certainly for me, many times during my, quote, real life, there's no pause between picking up the phone, hitting the home button, and going to town. Right. <laughs> right? Launching into whatever I would do. In fact, often when I give this instruction with people and I say, pick up your smartphone, they pick it up, they tap the home button, and they start doing something. And I find it very interesting that, you know, people's reaction to the instruction, pick up your phone, is actually to do a lot more than just pick it up. Because we, uh, whether we like it or not, have been trained by the technology to start engaging with it in a, in a mindless way. Uh, and so this kind of an exercise is intended to practice pausing. And, you know, I would suggest you could try doing this 10 or 20 times in a row, pick up the phone, put your thumb over the home button, pause, put the phone down without waking the phone up at all. Pick it up again, practice. And the intention there is if you keep practicing this and then you go off into your hectic life and it's you know eight o'clock in the morning and you're rushing out, you pick your phone up, whether by muscle memory or that habit loop being changed from the practice, you'll be more likely to actually pause when you need to and then be able to ask yourself, do I really want to wake the phone up now? You might choose to do it anyway, right? And mindfulness gives us a choice. It's not to deny yourself the use of the phone, but to de develop a new and different habit in which you can pause and make a conscious choice about what to do. Right. I really like this. And I noticed you do some of these exercises on your podcast at the yeah. beginning. And that is really good to get you thinking in different ways about technology. Yeah. Yeah. Think about it. And, you know, one of the things that draws me to mindfulness and, and inspired these uh, exercises is we know mindfulness is not just an intellectual task, right? We can understand mindfulness, but it takes actual practice to implement it in how we think and feel and, and behave. Uh, and uh, one, one reason I was drawn to, to develop the tap into mindfulness exercise is I'd hear people, I think it's good advice, well-intentioned, well, during your day, when the phone rings, practice not picking it up. And my thinking is, well, how likely are you to be successful at doing that in the midst of your life if you haven't practiced it separately? Yes. And, and to me, I think it was inspired in part by, as you said, I've practiced and studied Japanese martial arts since I was a kid. Coincidentally, around the same time I started programming and using computers. <laughs> but, you know, the philosophy of martial arts is you don't just sit and imagine a fight. You practice. You right. simulate fighting in controlled, systematic, safe, and increasingly over time, increasingly realistic ways. Uh, so that when you encounter an actual situation where someone attacks you or even just someone is verbally aggressive or has an aggressive type of attitude towards you, that training in which you simulated how to respond internally and externally will kick in. And so to me, these tap into mindfulness exercises are, are sort of uh, come from both of these backgrounds of mine, from traditional mindfulness meditation and martial arts, which takes a bit more of a applied, embodied, action-based approach to, to practicing and developing mindfulness. 
I'm curious uh, what some of the differences are between some of the other forms of martial arts compared to Japanese martial arts. Do you know? Yeah, you know, I have studied mostly Japanese, so I, I can't speak from, from uh, as much of an expert level about the others. I would say, um, and, and these are broad generalizations, you know, so they're even going to vary from teacher to teacher as much as they do from art to art or from Japanese to Chinese to Korean. But broad strokes, Japanese martial arts tend to start you as a beginner focusing on the body, on training the body, you know, mm -hmm. to take a little bit of a lighthearted approach. If you remember the Karate Kid movies, <laughs> uh -huh. I believe the teacher there was supposed to be Okinawan, uh, uh, but, you know, off mainland Japan, where he would, it was part of the joke of the movie, train the young kid to wax his car. That's and right. little did he know that by engaging in that waxing motion, he was learning how to block. But that is a very Japanese approach. As a beginner, for a long time, you train learning the physical technique and later go more into the internal aspect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for whatever reason, I think that has suited me well. I know other people who it's not good for. Um, they take very well. And again, I don't want to paint too broad a stroke, but I've spoken to some people who have trained in Kung Fu and other Chinese martial arts who've said they started from the beginning uh, focusing on the internal. In fact, mm -hmm. practicing breathing and meditation for a while before even doing any physical techniques. And I think in the end, you know, all paths lead to the same, <laughs> same destination. If you see a master in a Japanese or Chinese martial art, they may not look that different in how they act and probably even internally, they're, they may be in very much the same place, but as a teaching or pedagogical approach, Japanese tends to go more from the outside in, I would say. And I don't know if I'm just dense and that's why it appealed to me. <laughs> but, but that's something that's always worked well for me. Train the, the physical technique. And in fact, if I ever feel like I'm out of practice or slipping or need to rebuild a foundation in martial arts, I go back to the physical technique and that helps me develop the internal. In fact, one of my teachers had, had used a phrase which has always uh, resonated with me. You know, the mind follows the body. Mm. Um, which is train your body first um, to be something like still. And you may find that that helps still your mind. Um, you know, I'm also a scientist and engineer. If you, you're familiar, you, may have, you and your <laughs> listeners may not be familiar with induction. You know, magnetism can induce an electric current and an electric current can induce magnetism. Right. I think in mindfulness, it can work in both directions as well. It's not only true that the mind follows the body. The body can follow the mind. I think if you practice sitting mindfulness meditation where your body is still, but you're focused primarily on your mind, I've certainly found that can have effects on my body. Um, so that's one reason why to this day I continue to practice both and try to be attuned to both directions how mind influences body, body influences mind. And uh, I find both approaches really helpful. Robert, when did you first start meditating and what did it look like at that point? Yeah, you know, I really only started sitting meditation in earnest about four years ago. I'd say I dabbled in it before. Mm -hmm. And just as I said, all paths lead to the same destination. In martial arts training, you do some meditating. Sure. But 
in the in the martial arts I've done, it's not very emphasized at all, you know. Right. Uh, and over the years, I uh, I think here and there, I engaged in some sitting medita- guided sitting meditation sessions, but very very few and far between. So uh, I started about four years ago, and then I think three years ago is when I did the MBSR course, which you know is eight weeks, yes. uh, not extremely long. But there's a lot of work in between. There's daily practice in between the sessions and uh, you know, guidance from a really good teacher. And that helped me really jumpstart a more regular sitting meditation practice mm-hmm. for myself. Right. And is that silent, a silent meditation? It is silent. It is silent. And you know, what's interesting is um, I have experimented and continue to be, I'd say, somewhat flexible with exactly how I do it. You know, I had one teacher actually at MBSR who even there said, you know, when I say sit, I mean, you might stand. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I'd encourage, I think she'd say things like, I encourage you to keep your body relatively still, at least for now, but you might stand, you might lay down. She had some flexibility. I found that helpful. I would say most of the time I end up standing. Mm -hmm. Some of the time I end up having my eyes open or slightly open with a soft gaze. And what I try to do is stay attuned both before I start and even while I'm meditating, where am I now? Mm -hmm. And what kind of subtle physical change like opening versus closing my eyes or engaging in some sort of gentle movement, maybe a little swaying might help me get more grounded again. Uh, and so for me, that's an ongoing exploration, I would say. Uh, and then there are times where I say, all right, I'm just going to sit, literally sit still. (laughs) That's so interesting. You know, the different ways of looking at it. Does water have a special meaning for you in the world of mindfulness? It does. I'm curious why you ask, because the answer is definitely yes. (laughs) Well, I ask because I find that water personally is is very important to me. The sound of it, the feel of it, just watching it. But I'm interested in in your insight. Yeah. Uh, So I know that one of the questions you often ask people is what apps do you use maybe to help you be more mindful? Yes. And and there's a few apps I use, like one's called Focus at Will, Mm -hmm. uh, developed by, I think his last name is Henshaw, Will Henshaw. He had been in an 80s band. He's a musician, but he developed this in combination with some neuroscientists, his scientific backing to it. It's uh, different kinds of music that you can play to help you stay more focused and mindful. And what I use almost all the time is water sounds. I've experimented with different sounds, and some of them are music, some of them are nature, and for me, it's water. Right, right. <laughs> it's water. Uh, I thought you might be asking because in, um, in martial arts, you know, there's a saying, uh, mind like water, or yes. uh, suggest to try to be like water. And of course, that has many different layers of meaning. Um, one of them is that water doesn't resist, uh, when you jump off of a platform into water, right? The water absorbs and molds to you. Um, it's not completely compliant because it does reform, but it has a certain degree of flexibility and it it accepts what comes towards it while also at the same time having a degree of firmness 
And that has a lot of meaning and application in martial arts. Hmm. Very interesting. And who has been most inspiring to you in the world of mindfulness, Robert? Yeah, I think some of the people have not been uh, what who are traditionally thought of as mindfulness people. Um, uh-huh. You know, I certainly do read and listen to uh, Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. Coincidentally, I live in Barrie, Massachusetts. I can throw a stone at the Insight Meditation Society. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> really have uh, really a privilege to be here. Yeah. Uh, but I think because of my particular focus on technology, I've really appreciated some of the people who are looking really hard and critically at the role of technology. Uh, like Nicholas Carr would come to mind. I, I did have the honor to interview him on the podcast. He was one of the first people. There were a few people back in the ancient days of, you know, before 2010, (laughs) (laughs) who who were starting to be critical of the role of today. It's hard for people to remember. I would say around that time, uh, the iPhone had just launched. Overall, the cultural feeling was this is just all great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's all good. It's only positive. It's helping us be more connected. How can we get more of it? How can it get faster? How can we do more with it? There was a lot of what I'd call idealization of young people. Look how facile they are with tech. How can we learn from them? It seemed like it was all positive. And some people, Nicholas Carr being one of them, also Maggie Jackson was very early, started to raise critical voices. Um, some people have called them, and I think they have half accepted this, this moniker, the neo-Luddites, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, a Luddite is not necessarily someone who wholesale rejects technology. No. I think tries to just look at it critically, stay true to your own values, and ask, for any new technology, how does this either promote or impede my ability to stay true to my own values and live my life the way I want to, instead of letting the technology dictate how I live? Right. And, and Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, when I read it, was really a big, big eye-opener to me. It's a Pulitzer Prize nominee. He might not ever use the word mindfulness in the book, but, you know, I think... he. For those of people who haven't read it, first, I'd highly recommend you go back and read it, just as relevant as it ever was. But the key takeaway I took from it was maybe two, and I might end up saying three. <laughs> but uh, the, the ongoing use of the Internet at that time, Google, search engines, social media, literally rewires our brains, not mm. metaphorically. <laughs> you know, he, he interviewed and studied the neuroscience. It literally changes how our brains work, whether we like it or not. The companies, and not to ascribe bad intentions to them, but the companies that developed the technology know this, yes. and they intentionally design the technology to maximally capture our attention in ways that are most beneficial to their business models. That's just a fact. Yeah. Um, and it's good to, for us to be aware of this. And if we're aware of it, we can at least 
be conscious of that fact, and then start making some decisions about how we want to use the technology, including changing it, changing how we use it in some ways. One of the reasons I found this was really powerful, and I actually found it empowering in some ways to learn that uh, that the technology was more powerful than me. That may sound like a contradiction, <laughs> uh, you know, because look, uh, this is why I start out by saying individual mindfulness practice is important, but I don't think it's the only solution. Uh, I don't. I think it's too much to ask ourselves as individuals to, let's say, resist or on our own as individuals uh, resist what technology companies have put billions of dollars and a huge amount of effort and science into into doing to capture our attention. You know, it's too much. It's too much to ask. So I think there needs to be some collective action. I think there needs to be um, movement towards changing how the technology itself actually works. And I think some of what we need to do both individually and, and collectively is just make decisions about how and when we're going to interact with the technology at all. You know, I put I put the individual actions into two categories. There's when I'm using my smartphone, how can I be more mindful in my use of it? How can I apply mindfulness to my use of it? The second part is how can I apply mindfulness, wise action, wise thinking to decide when to put it aside? Um, and I've spoken to some people, including some mindfulness practitioners who I think I may be paraphrasing or, or, or giving them short shrift who would say, think there's something almost weak-minded about putting the technology aside. There's some sort of view that, well, if you're, I'm going to make a, uh, uh, this is kind of a joke, but if you're a mindfulness expert, you should always be able to remain mindful no matter what the technologies do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something wise in accepting our own limitations and say, you know, there's going to be some time where I don't want to put the energy into resisting every beep from this phone or putting my willpower into resisting it while it's in front of me. I'm just going to go away from it for a while. I think there can be some wisdom in that. And it's an ongoing challenge for me and for everyone else. But I think that's the kind of conversation I like to engage with, with other people. When we use it, how can we use it more wisely? And how can we decide when and how to not use it at all? And has mindfulness changed the way you deal with your emotions, Robert? Yeah, yeah, it, actually, it has a lot. And this is where I think the stillness aspect of mindfulness is really helpful. You know, I talked a lot earlier about action and martial arts. You, you, do, you engage in a lot of action movement of the body. I think for me, uh, sitting meditation has been very helpful in dealing with emotions, uh, particularly um, not just being able to notice what they are, but accept, accept that they're there and not, uh, I think before I did sitting meditation, I think I engaged in a lot of trying to change mm -hmm. difficult or negative emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so for me, sitting meditation has really, really been helpful. When you say dealing with emotion, just being able to be more aware of what they actually are at any given moment, uh, being able to accept them and notice them without being able to change them. 
And, uh, you know, I'm sure you know from your own mindfulness practice, sometimes that results in them lingering. Yes. Uh, you know, for a while. And sometimes I found that paying attention to them or even diving into them can result in them dissipating or changing in some way. But I, I'm always working on accepting in advance that whatever the outcome is, uh, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we haven't talked a lot about breathing, but tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Yeah, breathing is a, is a very, very big part of it. Always has been, you know, even from the martial arts training, sure. breathing is really, really fundamental. Uh, and it's been interesting for me to do sitting meditation because uh, certainly there, there, are, there are some similarities and differences between how I think breath is approached in the two. In my experience in martial arts training, we do pay attention to the breath, but there is... Uh, again, if I can paint it in broad strokes, there is more of a goal or pragmatic aspect to working on so somewhat improving the breath. We work on deepening it. We work on being able to maintain it as more of an even keel. We work on being able to breathe more deeply. Uh, and part of it is to, to develop physical power. You know, there, there, is a, there is a pragmatic goal, so to speak, at least as part of the martial arts training in the breath. And so it's definitely been interesting to me to come at the breath and sitting meditation from a different perspective. Uh, to, although sometimes when I'm doing sitting meditation, I will form the intention of both noticing the breath and if I notice that it's shallow, I will relax. But I also some of the time will merely notice what it is uh, without trying to change it. You know, and that, that's been a different experience for me. But certainly martial arts training, we often say that begins and ends with the breath, I think for all the same reasons. I mean, breath is the, it's the foundation of life, really. <laughs> Not to put it into it <laughs> terms, uh, but, but it is, right? Everything else yeah. stops when you're, when you're not breathing. And so uh, that, that's always been a really significant part and I do uh, do return to the breath. In fact, I did just go go back to a meditation teacher who I um, really rely on for a lot of guidance, and was asking her about about focus on the breath and uh, how I hear a lot of instruction these days that seem to imply to me we I'm going to use the word should always return to the breath. Uh, you know, and I found in my own practice, I'm at a point where sometimes if I'm, this goes back to your question about, diff, about emotions, you know, where sometimes if I'm experiencing and aware of a difficult emotion, that returning to the breath can feel like uh, a distraction. <laughs> mm. I know what you mean about that. That's very interesting. Well, Robert, I'm excited about your program coming yeah. out, Tap Into Mindfulness. When do you yeah. expect that'll be finished? Uh, you know, I, I'm gonna, I don't want to be like a lot of the startups I work with and keep saying in the next month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's pretty soon. We've done a lot of work on developing it, including testing it out with, with both mindfulness teachers and with direct students uh, in person and online. So what we're doing right now is really wrapping up the course materials. So I, I actually would think in the next month or two, we'll have an online version of the course available. Uh, 
mm-hmm. which uh, most of the exercises have a lot of that same flavor as that holding your thumb over the phone uh, one that I showed you earlier. They mm-hmm. get, I would say, progressively more realistic in that uh, they start with something simple like holding the phone while it's asleep and move into interactions with the phone that are more like what you would do in the course of your regular day. And all of them then apply mindfulness to help you pause and reflect and be able to develop that capacity to to act wisely in accordance with your intention with your smartphone. Right. Well, I'm fascinated to uh, take a look at that course when it comes out. But how can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do and connect with you more? I certainly know, you know, to connect with you on your podcast is a powerful thing. But tell us. Yeah, well, technology for mindfulness is the overall umbrella. Uh, we're at technologyformindfulness.com. Every, you can find everything technology for mindfulness there, uh, the blog, the podcast, tap into mindfulness uh, when it's formally available. We'll be there. You can sign up for our, our email list there. Everything is really there. Of course, we're on social media. You know, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, but if, if people want to start somewhere, I'd suggest just going to technologyformindfulness.com. Great. Well, Robert, it's been great chatting with you today. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I uh, hope we can chat again sometime. So thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, all the best to you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Maybe it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Hit subscribe and share. Subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.